0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. So we are continuing on in a series that is titled The Chief End of Man. Uh, And just to remind you of how we're defining that really quickly, when we think about the chief end of man, we're looking at uh, the essential purpose for which we exist, right? Like we're not We're not here by chance. Your moment by moment isn't existing for you to just make up your purpose in life. That's not really how things work. Uh, We believe that there is an objective truth to the reason for which humanity exists, and we believe that that reason came from the God who created us in his own image and in his own likeness. And so our, our, our purpose for being here, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is to glorify God, right? And so we brought this meaning back to a phrase, a sentence from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And as we closed out that first sermon, we looked at a passage from Romans chapter 6 where Paul explained that it's important for us to use our instruments, the instruments of our body, not for sin but to submit the instruments of our body to God for righteousness, right? And so as we look at that, then we start breaking down, okay, what are some of the main elements or the main instruments of being a human? And so we broke that down into four things. That as people, we have a heart, a mind, affections, and a will. And so Pastor Ed taught the first week, uh, as as we got into these instruments, he taught on the heart. And he taught that the heart really is the wellspring of the rest of our being, that whatever comes into the mind comes from the heart. And so as we look at the heart, he sort of gave us a test uh, to see what state or condition our heart is in, and we're really gonna talk about that a lot today. And he said, if your heart is not engaged in worship to the Lord, then you have to give a diagnosis about your heart that it is not necessarily in a great place because our hearts should be very excited about the person of Jesus Christ. And then last week, he taught us on the mind and how the, the heart and the mind really have a direct correlation and how whatever most enters the mind controls everything about us. And so as we look at the mind, we're going to find that, first off, we we found the connection to the heart, but now we need to take it a step farther. And what you're going to start seeing, uh, especially this week and next week, is how all of these things are very intertwined. In other words, you cannot have one healthy without having the other flowing along with it. And so just as the heart feeds the mind, the mind feeds what we're going to talk about today, which is the affections. We're going to talk about the affections Uh, And so, let me reiterate really quickly again this phrase or this sentence that we're using for the whole series. I want to elaborate one word for you. Uh, So the sentence is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're really, 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 really going to focus on this word enjoy. Because if we're going to talk about the affections, we have to talk about enjoying. Because here's what I can promise you. now listen. I'm a very animated person, okay? If you've heard me preach, you know that. But here's what I can promise you. It is absolutely impossible to legitimately enjoy something without there being an expression and an engagement of the affections. It's necessary. But I think oftentimes, the affections are something that we really neglect a lot of times, right? Uh, especially, in Western culture because we're very, we're, we're, we're very much intellectual people and we wanna store up knowledge and for some reason we have this odd mindset that the more knowledge we have, the more stoic we have to become, right? And so it's like the, the closer what we think, and it's not right, but what we think is the closer that we draw to the Lord, the more we have to have a stiff upper lip, right? The more we have to be very prim and proper, and that's a, that's a Western culture thing, it really is. We're not, we're not a very emotional and, and an affectious people, but I'm hoping to maybe stir that up a little bit in you today, because if I can be very honest with you, our affections and the engagement, the engagement of our affections is commanded in Scripture. Commanded, right? So this isn't something that we get to pick or choose, Commanded in scripture, listen to what Jesus says. In the greatest commandment, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 37, a man comes up to him and says, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Love, you must love the Lord your God. What is, what is love but an affection, is it not? It is a character trait, most certainly, but if you're going to honestly tell me that loving someone should not be stirring up your affections, I'd have to ask how your marriage is going. Imagine that for a second. Because some of us, when we think about love, we go, no, no, no. Love just means serve. It doesn't have anything to do with the affections. If all you've done is taken this idea of love and and dwindled it down to just serving and doing it's purely duty, that's a miserable life. That's a miserable life. But I would also argue, let's say that you do believe that. Let's say that you do believe that love is merely service. Well, let's look at God's commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as to how we should be serving him. Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. If you do not serve the Lord your God with joy and enthusiasm for the abundant benefits that you have received, you will serve your enemies who the Lord will send against you. He doesn't say if you don't serve the Lord, then I'll send your enemies against you. He says if you don't serve him with joy and enthusiasm, what are those? Affections. Affections. Our affections are commanded by Scripture. They're essential to worship and service. They are essential to worship and service. One guy who I don't expect many of you to know, and that's okay, uh, his name is Shai Lin. He says it like this. He says, theology without doxology is dead orthodoxy. What does that mean? It means the knowledge and study of God without the stirring up of affections and worship it's just dead practice. It's just dead practice. And so we're going to be in a passage today, and we're going to look at three points from the passage. And this is going to sound weird. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 3. Okay? So we're going to kind of go in between a chapter here, and I'm going to read the passage for you really quickly, and then we're going to dive into three points that Paul is making from this passage regarding, regarding our affections and regarding holiness, This is what Paul says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help and conquering a person's evil desires. Since you have been raised with Christ to new life, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the right hand, at, at, I'm sorry, (laughs) sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with God in Christ. So here's what Paul gives us in that passage. He gives us three things. He gives us a dead method, a dead outcome, and the answer to a vibrant life. A dead method, a dead outcome, and the answer to a vibrant life. And that's what I want to look at. Uh, As we look at the dead method starting out, what does Paul say? He begs a question, if you've been risen to new life with Christ, you've been raised with him, why are you still submitting to these silly rules that people are putting in place, these dead methods, right? And what does he, what does he do with it? He says don't taste, don't touch, don't, don't, but it, the point isn't the specific rules, the point is very easily this, you're living by don'ts. Do not, do not, do not. That's, that's the basis, that's the foundation of what they think the Christian life is all about. Don't do this. Now listen, Don't mistake me, right? I'm not up here preaching liberal theology where I'm just telling you, no, you can go and do whatever you want. That's not biblical. There is refrain in the Christian life. There is a repentance in the Christian life. In fact, Martin Luther would say that the Christian life is made up of repentance. But let me just say this really quickly. The Christian life should be far more engaged in what we do than what we don't do. There is a sense of morality, absolutely. We should be be some of the most moral people on the planet. But if your whole focus is on things that you don't do, then all you're ever looking at is the negation. And you're really only a rule follower, right? Paul emphasizes this new life in Christ, and if we have that, then why are we worried about don't, don't, don't? Some of the most moral people of the first century followed all the don't, don't, don'ts, didn't they? What did Jesus say about them? John chapter 5, verse 42. I know that you don't have God's love within you. Stiff upper lip, moral to the, to the max, 500, 600 something laws that they followed on a daily basis. Minimum of the first five books of the Bible memorized. Minimum. And Jesus Christ says to them, you don't even know the love of God. Super moral people, but living by a dead method, dead orthodoxy, that's all they knew, is dead orthodoxy. And so we have a misconception in the Christian life as being Christ followers. We have this gigantic misconception that what our job should be is to suppress emotion, to suppress happiness, and just grit down on our teeth, stiffen up our lip, pull us up by the bootstraps, and just do. Didn't Mary try that? And what did Jesus say? Or not Mary, Martha. What did Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're busy with many things, but Mary has chosen the one right thing, and it won't be taken away from her. What was Mary doing? sitting in awe, emotionally and affectionately engaged in the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Martha just serve, serve, serve. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this misconception that we have about suppressing the emotions. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul's gonna start out this whole argument. If you're you're thinking Christianity is just about suppressing our emotions, suppressing our affections and just gritting down the teeth and avoiding things, you've missed it completely. You've missed it completely. And so what is the outcome? Because I know some of you guys, man, you're on the edge right now. You're like, I don't, Daniel, I don't know if I'm buying into this whole thing. Well, what's Paul's outcome to this as he goes on in chapter two? Look at what he says. He says that it seems wise, right, to live that lifestyle, to have these super disciplined practices and this very moralistic standing. It seems wise. It seems as though there's strong devotion. It seems like there's some pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline. But, zero effect on killing the sinful desires. You see, there's something you have to keep in mind. You have insatiable desires for satisfaction and happiness. Insatiable. They will be gratified whether you like it or not. So it's foolish for us to try and just suppress those desires and think that somehow by just gritting our teeth and trying to serve harder with no happiness involved whatsoever that we're actually going to live a holy and worshipful life t- toward the Lord. Do you know what that's going to end in? One of two things. Complete splurges into self-gratification because you can't handle it any longer because you need something to satisfy or two You'll just grow to a place of nailing yourself in a very dark coffin, having no love for God in your hearts whatsoever and living a very dull animalistic life. Filled with bitterness and resentment because all you imagine God to be is a taskmaster who looks to strip away your joy, not knowing all the while he commands your joy. The affections are absolutely necessary to Christianity. If you notice, what Paul says is if we suppress them and we try these don't, don't, don't methods, it doesn't actually do anything to kill the sinful desires within us. And and let me beg a question really quick. What are sinful desires other than having your affections stirred up for sin? You see, affection and desire is synonymous. You're gonna desire something. And what scares me the most is how many of you in this crowd, perhaps, because you live this life of constant denial, Your affections are stirred up only toward your pride. And that leaves you as the person that Jesus Christ most rebukes. When we suppress our God-given desires, it will only lead to emptiness. It will only lead to emptiness. So if we want to overcome our sinful desires... We have to aim it towards something else, a different satisfaction. But I can promise you now, let me reiterate, because this is a a different concept in Western culture. To suppress it will only lead you down a very, very, very dark path. One guy you may have heard of, uh, Blaise Pascal, he had a really interesting observation about humanity. Listen to what he says. He says, all men seek happiness This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, the same desires in both attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal looks at humanity and he says, every single thing we aim at and every single thing we seek to do has the motive of finding some satisfaction and happiness. We want it. And not only want it, you absolutely need it. You need it. But what we tend to do is we suppress these insatiable affections because we think by suppressing them, we're actually living in godliness. If you've you've ever read the Old Testament, here's one thing I can promise you right now that you should have picked up on. God is a very affectionate God. He is jealous, he is wrathful, he is happy, He is loving, he is merciful, he is moved with compassion overwhelmingly. If you've ever read the Gospels, when God came in the form of man, when he came as Jesus Christ, did he not weep with passion? Did he not rejoice? You think you're growing in godliness by stiffening your upper lip and living a stoic life and you miss that God is a very emotional and affectionate God. The danger that comes in living a life of emotional or affectionate suppression is that the only thing you're doing is you're suppressing what could make you happy and still being filled with all form of evil desires. You know what that's like? It's like a really bad diet. It is, think about it. It's like just living on bland chicken breasts and asparagus, and I hate chicken breasts. I do, see y'all know, some of y'all know. I cannot stand chicken breasts. It's too bland, it's too dry. Give me chicken thighs, at least, right? But that's the equivalent here. It's the exact equivalent. You wanna lose weight, you're like, I just gotta eat flavorless food. No, you just need to be in a calorie deficit. You can still eat delicious things. And what happens to people that go on these really strict, flavorless, bland diets. They do good for three to five days and then suddenly they're like, give me all the jack in the box I can get. What do you think's gonna happen here? You need soul flavor, you need spiritual joy, you need fulfillment and satisfaction. And you try and suppress it and then you you don't understand, you can't answer why do I keep falling into these sin patterns constantly? Why do I find myself bitter when Scripture says I should be rejoicing? Why am I angry and hateful when I should be loving? Why am I impatient and snapping at people? Because you're miserable on the inside. Because you're looking at something God gave you as a human, having affections and aiming them at every wrong thing. The affections are not evil. They're God-given. Satan didn't come in and go, let's sprinkle some emotions in there. What Satan did is he just took God-given affections and he had you aim them at something illegitimate, something that isn't God himself. Do you ever just feel like sometimes God is such a burden for you? That he's trying to strip away all the good out of your life? I see some of you shaking your head, no, good. Because that means maybe you you actually have a proper understanding of what he wants for you, that God is very invested in your joy. But I know so many people that to think about the commandments of God is a bad taste in their mouth. And so they go through their Christian life obeying God, but hating every minute of it. But listen to what John says, 1 John 5, 3. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How many of you are loving God all the while hating every minute of it? Avoiding sin that you so love in order to perform righteousness that you can't stand. So what's Paul's remedy? The dead method is living by don't, don't, don't. The dead outcome is that you're still filled with sinful desires. You're just now angry about it. But there's an answer to a vibrant life and he mentions something three times in this passage. Three times in a few verses, that's a big deal. If you've been raised to life with Christ, three times in a few verses, if you've been raised to life with Christ, what's the the necessity here first off? Tell you what it's not, it's not new teaching. You don't need someone to come along and give you a new way or a new phrase or a new philosophy as to how to maybe enjoy God a little bit better. What you need is you need to be raised to life in Christ. If God is burdensome to you and he's bad medicine, it's because you've yet to be raised to life in Christ. You've yet to be born again. Because scripture teaches that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You know what scripture teaches about the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, 44. It's not on a slide. It's just coming to my head. That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that when a man finds it with great joy, he buries it again, runs home, sells everything he owns so he can buy that field. That's not burdensome. With great joy, he ran home and sold everything he owned. When we're born again, when we've been raised to new life in Christ, God is not bad medicine. He's no longer burdensome. He's a loving Father in heaven with our absolute best interest. Is the discipline painful at times? Absolutely, but we know and we trust that the outcome is good. If you've been raised to life in Christ, three times he calls us to that. Do the don'ts still exist? Absolutely, but they're not the focus. The focus is the new life. The focus is the new life that we have in Jesus. Look at what Paul says, Romans chapter six, verse four: "For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now now we also may live new lives." Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say because Christ died and resurrected from the grave, you should try harder to follow the rules. He says, you died with him by faith, and you've been raised with him to new life. You have not been improved. You've been made new, and that's important. And so what's the logical response? Colossians 3, 2, this is important. Now, I'm going to we're gonna quote some some KJV, some King James for a second because I think honestly the King James says it best. Uh, And let me me give you a little nerd out geek session for a second. Uh, In the Greek, you've really got two words that tend to be used for mind or thoughts. One of them is nous, the other one I can never say it right but it's dinonoia, something Neither of those are used. Paul uses a different word and the word that he uses is phroneo. Phroneo is a combination of things in the Greek. It's a combination of the mind, but something deeper, something farther than that. And so the way the KJV puts it, the King James, which I love, it says, set your affections on the things above. Not set your mind, not set your thoughts, though that is, that's, that's correct, but it goes beyond that. Because Paul... He doesn't just want you to know some facts about the kingdom of heaven and so think about it. He wants you to think about it so much that your heart and your affections are stirred up by that truth. And what happens if our hearts and our affections are stirred up into something? Celebration, worship, is it not? Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse eight, speaking to believers, he says this, you love him even though you have not seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. Have you ever had those moments where you wanna worship God, but you're so overwhelmed with who he is that you're like, there's not a word. No word can do justice for what he's worthy of in worship. Have your affections been stirred to that point that he's so good and he's so glorious? Let me say this. What is Paul talking about in Colossians 2? Do you remember? He's talking about putting to death the sinful desires. How does he say to do it? By stirring up your affections. You want the instruments of your body to be rendered unto righteousness to serve God, one of those instruments is your affections. And if you want to live a righteous life, if you want to be killing sin, you better be aiming those affections at something greater than this world. Otherwise, it's gonna find its place here. Tim Keller, I absolutely love this quote. I actually came across it on Instagram. Uh, the other week and I had to add it in kind of late. This is what he says. He says, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. But look at how he explains worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it, moved by who God is and what he's done for you. Listen, I promise you right now, if you're not experiencing God in a way that is provoking celebratory worship, that says a lot about your heart, the state of it. I've never found a place in Scripture where people encounter the living God and do not have a full-blown borderline outer body experience. Whether it's terror falling on the ground as dead or whether it's complete eruption in praise, even to the point, I remember Milt pointed out, one point, I don't know where he is, but at one point he pointed out uh, when Jesus transfigured on the mountain and Peter just goes into complete foolishness and it's like, let's build tents. It's like, what? What are you saying? And scripture even says Peter, he was out of his mind. He didn't even know what to say he was so overwhelmed. Have you been there? Man, let's not lose sight of our glorious God. Our glorious God. There's a passage that I quoted in the introductory sermon, Ephesians chapter one, verse three. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Look at how he starts that out. All praise be to God. All, not some. All. What is praise? Praise is its excited expression. Is it not? Like, I know, I know. We're Baptists. Some of us are like, no, Daniel. Praise is to stand up and just kind of lip the words. Don't really get loud right? We can't get too crazy. I'm not, I'm not, man, is your heart overflowing with excitement for the person of who God, for, for, the, for who God is, for his person? It should be. Paul says all praise. And listen, I remember, I remember when I was first born again, 2009 is when I was saved, June 2009, uh, did not know anything about Christianity. I was 24 years old, and just kind of stumbled into this church because I knew that this church existed. And I remember being in here, early early believer, and standing next to people during worship, and they'd raise their hand, and I'm like, oh my gosh, calm down, like what are you doing? What is this, right? This isn't a party. Just because they did this, I'd freak out. But I remember over a two-year period coming to understand the doctrines of the gospel, what all we have in Christ, what all God sacrificed for us. Coming to understand what it meant to be born again. And it just got to where it felt like I couldn't contain it. Just couldn't contain it. Do you understand what he's done? Do you have any understanding who it is that stepped down from that throne in heaven to come down in the form of a man, subject to the law, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, dying under the wrath of God, becoming a curse to free us from the curses of the law? Right? For what reason do we not have to worship? You say, well, Daniel, man, last night was just bad. I just, I did this day. I made this huge mistake this past week and I just don't feel like I can. Why? Who qualified you for the kingdom of heaven in the first place? Do you understand that when you find yourself having stumbled into sin, that should be all the more reason to rejoice because you've been forgiven? Shouldn't that be the time when you feel guilty and you feel condemned that you run to Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And then when you remember that condemnation has been removed because Christ suffered that whole thing, that he took that blow of eternal, omnipotent justice in your place and you've been set free from it, your substitute, your atonement, does that not provoke worship in you? Listen, we were once a people dead in sin, emotionally dull to the person of God. But even when we were dead in sin, enemies of God, and children of wrath, those famous theological words, but God made us alive in Christ. We should be the happiest, most rejoicing, worshipful, celebratory people on the entire planet. The gospel is an expression of something. John 13, 35, Jesus says this. He says, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no man than this. No, no, greater love has, anyways, you heard what I said. <laughs> I'm getting tongue-tied now. And what does that produce, though, right? For some of you, man, you hear that and you're like, hmm, that's good, Daniel. But what does John say? 1 John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. We love because see how many of you have, have have in this I know in this audience a lot of us are married or have been uh, early in a relationship. What do you experience? This uncontainable excitement, right? Of this new uh, this new affectionate feeling that you have toward this the the butterflies you can't stop you know it's all there it's all there later on you get married you're like uh but i don't know that i don't know that but early in you're super excited about it right it's so silly to me that we go man i've experienced the love of god that's cool Eh. that it's not sparking excitement Right, when we believe the message of Christ, when we believe Him, we receive His Spirit, right? That's a doctrine we believe. And not only just as Baptists, but if you're a Bible-believing Christ follower, you better be believing that. By faith, we receive the Spirit according to Galatians 3. So what happens when we receive the Spirit, Romans 5, 5? And this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. What a tragedy when we're more excited about the love of another person than we are the love of our God in heaven. What a broken idolatry we live in. We've been given the love of God and so our affection should be stirred up. And so let me close with three points really quickly. Uh, These are not my three points that I made up. I stole them from Jonathan Edwards, his first sermon when he was 18 years old. And his argument was why Christians should be happy. This is the three reasons he gives. Number one, our bad things, I'm gonna read them all three and then explain. Our bad things will turn out for our good. Number two, our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, the best things are yet to come. What do we have in Christ? Well, he's taken all the condemnation, all the guilt, all the suffering. So all we have left is Romans eight twenty eight, that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How many things? All. Not some. Not only the good things. Every single one of them. Every tragedy in your life, every moment of achievement, every mountain peak, every low valley, every time you're drowning in the bottom of the ocean, God is using every single bit of it for your good. Every bit of it. So what? What are we upset about? That we have a loving Father in heaven who disciplines us and shapes us and forms us into the image of Jesus Christ? Listen, I've pouted about it before, I'm not going to lie. God hadn't given me things I wanted. Then I realized I'm being a small child stamping my feet because I'm not getting a Jolly Rancher. <laughs> Eventually, you've got to put the childish things away. He's using all things for good. I'm going to celebrate that from now on. Praise God, man. Pressure is a privilege. But secondly, our, our good things can never be taken away from us. Let's go back to that C.S. Lewis quote. Eternal treasures in heaven where rust can't destroy, thieves can't steal, right? Quoting Francis Chan, I'm gonna butcher this, but so many of us, man, we spend our whole lives laboring and laboring and laboring for a retirement that we might enjoy for 10 or 15 years. We've, We've got a whole eternity to be storing up riches. None of your good things will ever be taken away. Is that not more motive than anything else in the entire planet to do and take advantage of every good opportunity that you have? No matter if people see it here or not, you have a father in heaven who sees every bit and promises you reward, and he does it unblushingly. And then lastly, the best things are yet to come. Do you understand there is not a single moment? Think of the, uh, th- just think about the most rapturous delight you've ever experienced this entire life. The best thing, the best thing you've ever experienced. And understand that that is just a fragment, a tiny little, app- it's not even an appetizer. It's like dipping the tip of your fork in the appetizer and then touching it to your tongue. To what awaits An eternal weight of glory awaits. My friend always says this, and I love it. He says, for the believer, this life is the the closest we'll ever get to hell. I thought, man, (laughs) I've had some great, listen, praise God, I've had some great moments in this life, but it doesn't even touch on what's to come when I'm in his presence. If those three things will not stir up your affections, then we need to go back to that start. Have you been raised with Christ to new life? Have you experienced him? Have you come to know him? That's where we'd have to start. As I close, I just wanna let you guys know, we'll be over here in the hospitality room, right over here to my right, your left. I've memorized that, Pastor Ed. Uh, felt just like you saying it. We'll be right over here. If, if, if for any of you who have yet to experience Christ in that way, we'd love to walk with you through that and talk about it. And if you just want to swing by and chat, we'd love to chat with you as well. But I'm gonna pray. Um, I'm just I'm thankful for this opportunity. Let's pray. Father, how silly we've become to attempt to control whatever we think we're controlling by focusing so much on our intellect and focusing so much on the things that we do and leaving out the fact that you command that we obey you with joy and enthusiasm God, we're such an unhappy people so often and about things that are so ridiculous. I pray, Father, you give us an eternal perspective. Teach us to number our days. But with that, Lord, show us the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of your love that we would know your love that surpasses knowing. And that we would be a people filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Lord, don't don't let us ignore the gift of the affections so that we would enjoy you forever. For your name's sake, amen. Guys, have a great week.